Today we have with us Mike Feynman, co-founder of Texas Business Brokers. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, very interested to learn about the companies that you've seen in your experience and some of the lessons that you've learned. So why don't you kick us off and tell us you know, how you founded Texas Business Brokers, and, and uh, we'll dive into some of the lessons that you've learned. Sounds great. Well, I have many, many years in the retail world, uh, 20 years at PepsiCo, specifically Taco Bell, and then I ended up working for Yum! Brand, so I was helping with KFC Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and then also internationally with 16 countries internationally, so I did that for a little while. That was a tough job because it was a centralization play, trying to centralize the company, and that's always hard. <clears throat> and but I was always a restaurant guy, and I really didn't have any other industries, you know, kind of uh, with from an experience standpoint. So I decided to get into the fitness world because I was really into that. You know, I was working out all the time, playing a lot of basketball, cycling, you know, doing all the things that uh, that you probably do here in Austin that uh, and uh, that they don't do a lot in Louisville, Kentucky. So I ended up moving to Dallas and uh, went to go work for a couple of fitness companies, uh, specifically 24 Hour Fitness, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, and one and a half billion dollar company, and um, and then left them. Uh, once the industry, and we'll talk a lot about industries and kind of where industries go, that industry kind of became a commodity. Whereas when I started, it was it was a lot more of a of a product, and you could really differentiate yourself. So I ended up getting into the the jewelry industry, the premium retail industry, which I had never done before. Did that for three years, and then ultimately decided that I wanted to go off on my own and purchased some restaurants. So I purchased three uh, Fazoli's restaurants, uh, two in Waco, one in College Station, and the broker who was selling the selling the restaurants representing the seller said we became friends he was working at pizza Hut many years ago when i was at taco bell and we really hit it off and we were he called me his fraternity brother um, and i say that sadly because he's no longer with us and um, so it's a bit of a sad story of how i got in this business but when he was still around we we're playing racquetball we we're playing tennis and one day he said let's meet for and this is during my due diligence he's representing the seller and but we you know really got to know each other and, and really hit it off one day he called me up and he goes hey mike let's go grab a cup of coffee it has nothing to do with fazoli's and I said, okay. So we sat down and he said, I've got a question for you. What are you going to do the other four and a half days a week? You're, you're owning three restaurants right now. It's it, restaurants are tough. So it's a little bit more than a half a day a week, but um, you know, I've, brand 350 restaurants, you know, 400 restaurants. So, you know, his question was, was good. I didn't have an answer for that. You know, really at the end of the day, I'm not going to go run the restaurants. They're in Waco and College Station. I live in Austin and uh, thank God for a lot of reasons, because I probably would be in there every day. And so he said, let me teach you to be a business broker. He goes, you've got all the business knowledge to, to do it. You've done everything in your career. That's, you know, basically you've set yourself up for this occupation. And the only thing you need to learn is how to, how to market it. And um, long story, Story short, about th two months into him uh, starting to teach me, uh, and I had 14 listings in like two months. It was crazy. I, you know, it was unheard of. And you know, I, was, I asked my dad. I, I told my dad. I said, "I've got 14 listings. This is great." Uh, called the company Retail Growth Associates back then. I said, "Isn't that great?" And he goes, "So what are you going to do now?" I said, "I'm going to get more listings." He goes, "No." Because you're going to sell those listings, <laughs> you know. Don't don't become a listing broker. So it was good education. But anyway, about two months into that uh, experience, he called me up and he said, "I need you to come and get all my files." And I said, "What's up?" And um, went over to his house and he had mesothelioma. He was in the Navy. He was sixty, late sixties, and he was in the Navy and used to decommission ships and got all that asbestos in his lungs. And so he ended up. Uh, it was really quick. I mean, that was literally June, July that we uh, – no, July, August that we worked together. And by January, I was there the night before wow. and that night. So really, really sad. But he's kind of an angel up there that set 
you know, kind of set me up. And so originally I got in the business as retail growth associates and I was really, and I still am about growth. So we, uh, and there's a lot of things that we'll talk about in terms of the way we do business that's critically important for that. We don't do bad deals. You know, we call it a win-win. I call it a win-win-win. Seller wins, buyer wins, we're the third win. If the first two wins don't happen, I don't want the deal. I won't, uh, you know, it's just not, you know, from an altruistic standpoint, from a karma, you know, I'm kind of believing the next level after karma, which is just altruism. So I won't do a bad deal. It's just not the right thing to do. But anyway, so started as Retail Growth Associates. And then the first business I sold was Alex Cabaz's business, which was a, um, a you know, and you know, you've met Alex, which was a um, irrigation company. And pretty amazing his story. Maybe someday he'll come on and although he gets a little, a little nervous and <laughs> but he's a great guy and really a great sales guy and a, uh, you know, a great uh, tech, technolo- technology kind of a guy. And so I sold his business and we got involved in what you know about Rainbox, uh, which is pretty brilliant. And uh, one day I said, so what are you going to do the other four and a half days a week? And long story short, we, you know, kind of came together. Originally, I was just going to teach him and, and take, you know, a chunk of royalty or whatever you wanted to call it. And then we realized we kind of complete each other. I'm the old guy. He's the young guy. You know, I'm, I'm okay with technology. I have an iPad in front of me and I can write on it. Well, that's pretty good, right? But he understands AdWords and all that kind of stuff. So, so uh, through that process birthed Central Texas Business Brokers. I was retail growth. He was Central Texas. And then we, I realized that I wanted to be central texas because the website was better and the ad you know the google adwords you know the marketing was better etc and um, then we had a chance to buy the name texas business brokers we did that then we grow to kentucky business brokers we've got that that brand as well and i've got a broker out there and now we're you know pretty much all over texas and and loving it yeah that's awesome you mentioned that you don't do bad deals explain to me what is a bad deal if the win-win-win isn't there. I mean, I think the most basic way, and I always like to go kind of macro and then we can go micro. I mean, I think if the if the seller's not going to win, if the seller's not going to walk away with a smile, make, you know, uh, accomplish their objectives, his or her objectives, that's a bad deal. If the buyer is buying a bad deal, either it's a bad deal financially or it's not the right deal for them. So a lot of my kind of due diligence or qualification process with buyers are, why do you really want to do this? This is really what you want because I don't want to get to the end and waste anybody's time where it ends up being a bad deal. So as an example, I've got some HVAC companies. I mean, B2B is rocking right now. Everybody wants to do B2B, especially in Austin because the economy is growing. Well, I get a lot of people that want to purchase an HVAC company. The two that I have, which are big companies, are selling for a million and a half each. Well, you know, in, in context, they're, they're pretty good-sized companies, selling for a million and a half each. Problem is, is that the, the sellers are leaving. One of them's leaving because of poor health, so he's taking his license with them. And then the other one, they want to do something else. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're done. It's a husband and wife team, and they're done, so they're taking the license. So you talk to people that want to buy an HVAC company, have no idea what it takes to run an HVAC company don't, they didn't even know that they needed a license. Nothing against them, but they didn't know that they needed a, a master license to run an HVAC company, let alone everything that goes with it. Um, that's a bad deal. Unless they say, I know what it takes. Um, I my, my brother has a master. He's going to be or she's going to be part of the business, my sister. Um, and, and, and I understand what it's all about with technicians and, and you know, dealing with B2B and also having residential, and I get all that, then that's potentially a good deal. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I guess the third win is if, 
you know, if I'm not going to make any money, that's a bad deal too, but really in that order. And I believe if you get the first two wins, then, then it will win. Yeah. What's some of the most common reasons why you see business owners selling their companies? So there's a lot of reasons. I mean, right now, if you think, again, macro, there's a lot of baby boomers out there, and the baby boomers are a very wide kind of range. So you've got baby boomers that are retiring, and you've got baby boomers that are, you know, my age, because I'm probably, I'm 58, I'll be 59 in two weeks. So the, um, the baby boomers that are my age that are still working, but are sick and tired of the corporate world, sick and tired of, you know, quarterlies and sick and tired of maybe this, you know, private equity and dealing with all that kind of stuff. They've got a lot of 401k money which that 401k money can be self-directed and you can have it invest into your businesses, which I don't know if your listeners know that. That's, and we can talk a lot about that. That's very, very important to know. Uh, you have 401k that's making 2 or 3% in the stock market, you know, maybe 4%, or you can take that money and invest it in yourself and make you know, 20% margin or 10% margin, whatever you're buying. But anyway, so you've got these baby boomers on my end of it that, that want to do their own thing and have a lot of expertise and have some cash. And then, you ha- again, you have the older baby boomers that want to retire. So those are two kind of reasons of why um, you know, the, the, on the top end they're selling and on the bottom end why they're, they're purchasing. And then there's also, frankly, some baby boomers that are my age that say, you know, I've done well and I'm done. And I want to sell and I want to retire. So retirement and that kind of group. Then you've got people that health reasons that are, are, you know, that they can't continue to work like this HVAC company I have. And it's, you know, it's pretty sad, but he's doing the right thing for his family by trying to, you know, set them up. And, um, and then you have people that want to sell because the business isn't doing well. And that's a really, you know, I had a conversation today with someone who's got a, a rental business. So they rent, uh, do rentals for uh, weddings and parties and things like that. And I can always tell when I get the phone call and they say, I've got this small business that I want to sell. And there really is a number, which I'm sure you're you know, dying to ask. There's a number of how much money you really need to be making to make a business truly sellable. And there is a number. Hmm. And I'll explain that. Um, but it's certainly not breaking even. Businesses sell today as a multiple, as you know, as a multiple mark of your of your your cash flow of your seller's discretionary income, which is a whole nother discussion about what is seller's discretionary income. So um, you know, so those are businesses that you really can't sell. And then what we do is, and we have a couple of examples of this, is we say uh, either you need to do what you need to do and get it sellable, and you now you know where it needs to be which I know you're still dying to hear, but I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to hold out on that. Um, Or the second thing is uh, if you don't know how to get it where it needs to be, then let's sit down and put together a strategic plan. And we've done that with uh, one company. It went from making $50,000 a year, which is a great story, a husband and wife that had, uh, and also actually was in the wedding world. They were making $50,000 a year. They wanted to sell their company. And I said, what are you going to do? You're 27 years old, making 50 grand a year. You're going to sell your company and go work for someone else? And his name was Ryan. He became a good friend of mine. And I kind of just looked at him and said, you are not the kind of guy that's going to work for somebody else. Sorry, but that's just not your, and he goes, yeah, you're right. I said, why don't you guys fix it? And they said, we don't know what to do. So we put together a vision and strategies and tactics, and I sold it three years later, two and a half years later for $650,000. They were making two hundred grand. So we've got a couple of examples like that. So when companies aren't ready for sale, we, we can help too. Got did it. that answer your question? Um, yes, that did. Um, we, but we raise a few more points now. Um, <laughs> 
When do you want to address the what the number is? Yeah, that, I knew that you were companies. Ask. What's well? I'm going to make you kind of. I'm going to kind of wait a little okay. bit. Okay, we can. That. We, so, we can. No, wait. no, no, no. What's your? You said a couple of questions, so let's do the other let's one. Let's talk and then about we'll the seller's discretionary one. income. Let's, okay, let's good. Define that. Good. So that's and that really ties in actually. So seller's discretionary income. If you, I'd say that seventy percent, sixty-five to seventy percent of the businesses that are out there actually that that call me to sell their business actually have a P and L, and I would say that eighty percent of them are on what. QuickBooks, right? Mm-hmm. So 80, 80% of those. So, so maybe 50% of the businesses that are out there are on QuickBooks. So if, you know, maybe you should sell your QuickBooks stock if you think that that number is not going to grow any or you should you know, get some. But anyway, um, if you look at your net income on whatever financial statement that you use and you add back things, they're called addbacks. You add back things like depreciation and amortization um, and then other discretionary spending expenses, such as, you know, if uh, uh, meals and entertainment, because that's a discretionary thing. You don't have to do that. You don't have to charge that to the business. You add back interest, not the principal payments, but the interest payments. The principal payments don't end up on the P&L anyway. They end up on your balance sheet. Um, and then you add back any of the seller's um, salary pay, those types of things that you're, you're adding back. Also, any one-time expenses. So let's say that um, I had to buy a. Let's say for the wedding, we'll, we'll stay on kind of that that uh, that subject. Let's say for the wedding company that I bought a bunch of staging because I was going to use it to rent it out. So it's a one-time expense. It has a long-term useful life. You consider that a capex expense. That st- would be added back as well if it hit the P and L because a lot of people do uh, do expense those. Whatever's left after you take that income and add all that stuff back is your seller's discretionary income. Then that is what is multiplied by whatever the multiple is for that industry. And so as a broker, we can go in and we can see, you know, for the typical wedding venue company, right, that does wedding rentals, the typical across the country is selling for, you know, say, you know, two times earnings or two and a half times earnings or something like that. And then we could also say, but what about in Texas? So in Texas, it's 2.8 times earnings. But that's what they're selling for, what the prices are that are out there. And then the next question is, what have they actually sold for? And so typically you would think that the selling price would be higher than the sold price, right? Because everybody wants a deal. But sometimes you have an inverted situation. Because remember, you're not looking at the exact same businesses. So sometimes you have kind of this inverted situation. And that's dependent upon a lot of things. That could be dependent upon timing. Um, A lot of the for sales could be now and a lot of the solds could have been three years ago when the market was different because you can't control what's reported and the timing that is reported. Or it could be indicative of a hot market. And so there's ways to kind of look at that. And if it's a hot market, the market's transitioning, right? So every single time I sell something, a lot of times when I sell things, I get multiple offers. So the price is getting driven up. And so that's another reason why. I mean, it's it's, people go, oh, that's just like real estate. (laughs) Well, it kind of is. So that's what your seller's discretionary income is, right? How you calculate it. That's what you use it for. And now to answer your question. Okay. Well, maybe I'll wait (laughs) to answer your question. So think about it logically. So to make, you know, let's just say that, uh, I mean, we know how much uh, the average wage has gone up, especially with unemployment where it's at. I mean, companies are paying at a premium. Trust me, in my restaurants, I'm paying at a premium. And um, so we use the number of you've got to be significantly above $100,000 in seller's discretionary income. 
So why is that? So let's just say that we sell a company that someone's making $100,000 straight and we sell for two times earnings. That's $200,000. Let's say we do what I call a test of reasonableness. So someone says, I'm, 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 I know I'm making $100,000, but I should be able to sell my, my company for $500,000. Because I have, you know, I put that much into it. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you sell it for 500000 someone's going to borrow, you know, say $450,000. They're going to put down, you can put down 10% now with, with the SBA with some of the rules. Now, sometimes banks require more, in, uh, but they, you know, uh, the, the SBA doesn't require that. So now I'm borrowing $450,000. So my debt payments are going to be at least 4000 So let's say my debt payments are going to be forty dollars to $50,000 a year, my debt service. So that $100,000 now just shrunk to 50. So am I going to spend $500,000 to make 50? So the you know this is it's a test of reasonableness, right? It's really kind of a logical thing. So if depending upon the multiple if the multiples legitimate and and realistic, if I sell a company that's making $100,000 for 200,000 and someone comes in and borrows say 150, say, you know, just let's use 150 as a round number. So then their debt service is going to be maybe 20,000 a year. Because they're going to have to have some operating capital also. So let's say worst case scenario is twenty. They're still making eighty. So am I going to spend two hundred to make eighty? And am I going to have you know basically a two and a half year payback period? So that kind of starts making sense. And so when we meet with buyers, we really kind of explain all that and help them understand that you know we want you to we'll list it for whatever you want to and we don't say that as much anymore and i try to get my brokers not to say that because i'm not going to list a company making hundred thousand dollars for half a million dollars now one of the questions i know a lot of the listeners are thinking is well, what if there's real estate well there's always two different transactions even if there is real estate there's the real estate and then there's the business okay we use commercial realtors to handle the real estate to make sure that it's handled properly. That's not our expertise. And that's typically not a broker or business broker's expertise. So be careful. <laughs> and if they say, oh, no, we've got commercial brokers, I want to meet the commercial broker. I want to know what they know. I want to know who they know and make sure they're the right ones because you don't have to use their commercial broker because you're going to pay them anyway or her. So anyway, so that's kind of you know, gets it, so all of these rules of $100,000, there's reasons behind it. And that's why I say it's got to be significantly above. So there's your answer, Mark. Got it. Got it. <laughs> that, that, I appreciate the context. So if a business has $100,000 of seller's discretionary income, that's kind of the, that's like the litmus test, or that's like the, that's the watermark that they need to like basically be above in order to be sellable. So just uh, say it a little differently. Significantly above one hundred thousand. Significantly above. Okay. okay, so that's kind of what I try to say because there are some businesses at a hundred. You know, maybe they want to sell it for one hundred and fifty. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. but it depends on the business, and there's some hot industries that we'll find someone in a second for that, and we still make our minimum fee, so we're we can live with that. Mm-hmm. But it's a little tough for brokers because if I sell a business that's going to sell for excuse me, 100, if I start to sell a business that's going to sell for 150000 or I sell a business that, you know, we've got a, a $7.5 million business, a marine construction company, it's pretty much going to be the same work. Maybe a little bit more work with this, you know, $7.5 million company. But at the end of the day, there's a letter of intent, there's a purchase agreement, there's financing, there's due diligence. It's all 
kind of the same, except for the marine construction company where you're going to have helicopters that have to go out and see the boats because the boats are out in the ocean. So there's a difference, but I'm not the one on the helicopters. <laughs> I get, you know, I probably would get, I get seasick and I think a helicopter over the ocean, I might get uh, motion and seasick. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you touched a little bit on, you mentioned hot markets a couple of times. So what are hot markets right now? So right now, hot markets really are B2B. Mm-hmm. Their businesses and technology are, are pretty hot. Not technology in terms of the repair side, um, you know, the um, uh, kind of the help side uh, of the, the hardware side, but more, as everybody c- could imagine, the, you know, the SaaS side of it. And, um, and then B2B, like the, the, you know, these, these uh, landscaping companies that are for sale are, are, are pretty hot, go pretty quick. Um, believe it or not, um, uh, auto shops go go pretty good if they're making if they're making good money. Um, they're not B two B, but um, but they do they do quite well. And then what's not hot? It, restaurants are not hot right now. Um, you've got a lot of uh, competition. It's a very overbuilt uh, market, except for fine dining. Um, and then what else is not hot? Are salons, hair salons, um, those types of things. Believe it or not, massage. Uh, uh, Spas are very hot and sell very, very quick. You've been in business long enough to kind of see different market fluctuations from peaks to troughs, right? So growths and expansion, uh, growths and recessions. How do market changes affect what what uh, companies are hot, what industries are hot? Uh, you know, it's. It, it, I'm, I'm sure if I pause here for a second and ask your listeners that question, like in your mind, in your world, in your world of expertise, and what you know, because everybody knows what where they're involved. Um, how would you answer that question? What makes markets hot, right? And um, and each person, each one of your listeners, I wish they could call in, right? Because they could all tell you, right, in their world, what's in and kind of in their sliver. There's a bunch of subslivers, and in their you know in their sliver, these are the subslivers that are super super hot, and here's the ones that are not. And the reason, you know, and the reasoning why. But at the end of the day, it has to do with the, ba- you know, so if you took all of that and stuck it into this machine, right, this computer and said, okay, so out of all of that, what are the rules that come out of that? The rules that come out of that are the basic rules, you know, the economic rules. I mean, the companies that are making a lot of money for a little bit of investment and have a future that they're going to continue to earn at an increasing level. And, you know, and so you can look at every industry and all those slivers and then the sub slivers and say, that's really where, you know, I want to focus. So then what ends up happening is the volume of calls that we get, right, are in both sides of, you know, so if you said there's really the north and the south side of that sliver, they're from both sides, but for very different reasons. On the the high side of that sliver, it's because, you know, I'm tired. I want to retire. All the stuff that we talked about earlier. On the low side, it's the it's so difficult. I can't take it. It's affecting my health. I need out, and it's kind of the worst time. Yeah, you know. Um, what are the type of buyers are you seeing primarily? Are they primarily financial buyers or strategic buyers? Um, I would say that in in our experience, sixty percent are financial buyers, and forty percent are more kind of strategic. Yeah. And is the preparation process or the due diligence process of entertaining offers from either of those, are they, are they different from each other or are they pretty much the same? Um, well, first of all, a, a little kind of commercial uh, uh, break here. Um, for example, I had a strategic buyer call, strategic buyer call me uh, on 
is it Saturday? Believe it or not, Saturday. And they are in the uh, athletic uh, running uh, retail side, and they want to buy bricks and mortar retail stores, and and they and they'll pay good, they'll pay five times for them. And I'm I'm like, yeah, that's where I was. I don't think it's Saturday morning. I got my coffee in front of me. I get this phone call. So I had to answer it. And it's it's a, you know, this guy who's in charge of acquisitions for them. And uh, I said, wait, did I hear you right? You want to buy bricks and mortar running stores? And they said, yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and of course, you know, so, uh, you know, it's the working with strategic buyers is is very different. It's a it's a much uh, deeper Due diligence process, you know, I would say it's a more structured due diligence process. I mean, you know, if you, which every buyer should should do this, if you Google, you know, due diligence list, you're going to get umpteen different lists, which are basically all the same. And the only difference when we get that, you know, a lot of times we don't get that. We just get, you know, kind of a haphazard due diligence process. With strategic strategic buyers, you get a very organized, and it's one of those lists. It's just theirs. You know, it's probably their lists are out there that everybody's getting when they Google them. So it's a different process. It's a it's definitely a more pragmatic. It's kind of like dealing with the bank. Now, obviously, if you know, even with a financial buyer, if you and when I say when you say financial, I think you really kind of mean independent buyer versus like, like private strategic. equity. Oh, okay. Well, private equity and strategic, you know, strategic buyer and kind of in our language is. Um, so this this company that wants to buy up running stores is a strategic buyer. They're they're strategically trying to find more running stores. So when I'm trying to sell an HVAC company, I would love to find. So these HVAC companies are in Austin. I would love to find someone in DFW that has an HVAC company in DFW wants a presence in Austin or in Central Texas doesn't want to send someone down here and kind of generate that business. What they want to do is they want to acquire, right? So that's a strategic buyer. So that's kind of when you said strategic buyer, I thought that's what you were talking about. So they're typically larger and uh, typically have their act together more. Um, Private equity uh, could be a strategic buyer if if they already own in that space. Um, If you get a private equity that doesn't own in that space but wants to own in that space, it's still very similar in terms of the you know, the uh, kind of the uh, depth of their of their kind of their process from A to Z, from, you know, LOI. Like, like I don't get a phone call or an email from them saying, do you have any sample LOIs that, you know, so I can work? <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to use the, I'm not a lawyer, but here are some examples. And I put it in the email as well. I'm not an attorney. This is now. Um, but an independent buyer is much more, is much different. And, um, and a lot of times are a little bit, more haphazard in their process because they don't really know how to do it. And I always tell buyers, uh, buyers will call me and say, hey, I need your help. I want to buy a business. And I'll say, well, ask them, what do you need my help doing? Uh, and they'll say, well, I don't know where to begin. I say, okay, well, you can pay me 500 bucks an hour to do this for you, but I, I, that's not right. And that wouldn't be a win-win-win. So here's what you should do. Get on Biz by Sell. And you can put in searches because Biz by sells like the you know the, um, the the real estate MLS at, at the end of the day for businesses for this size businesses. So put in a search for the kind of business you want to buy. Oh, I don't know what kind of business I want to buy. Okay, well let me ask you a couple of questions. You know, where's your experience? What do you love? Like, what turns you on? And then I'll give them examples. Okay, you know, this is what you ought to do. And now you owe me 500 bucks. No, I do do that for free to help folks. But when you find your business, 
That's when you want someone like me. So don't get a broker to help you find your business. You can do that. But when you find your business, then you may want to pay me to do your due diligence for you or at least help you through it. You know, and, and I, then I tell them, you're stuck with me now. So if you uh, find a business and you want to text me or send me an email or call real quick, um, as long as it's not <coughs> a huge engagement, I mean, I'm spending 15 minutes on the phone saying, oh, no, no, run away from that. I'm happy to do it and happy to, you know, help folks. Now, let's talk about the opposite side of that. What should business owners do if they get an unsolicited offer? It depends on who the business owner is. <laughs> Okay. Right. So if it's a business owner who's been through, you know, been to the rodeo before and knows what they're doing, then, you know, they, they, um, and they understand what the value of their business is, that they truly understand and not that they think they understand. So if someone gets an unsolicited offer, I mean, it really does depend on who they are and what their expertise is. And so if they've, again, been to the rodeo before, they know what their business is worth, and they really do know, not, not subjectively, but objectively, right, what their business is worth, then I think that it makes total sense for them to kind of work through the process and use whatever people that they have to help them. It doesn't hurt. To uh, if someone receives an offer to get a business broker, uh, and here's here here's why, because a business broker can real quickly tell you what your business is worth, and at least real you know. So I get a phone call like that. Hey, I got an offer. I'm making three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. They offered me seven hundred. This is the kind of business I have. Is it a good offer? Well, it takes me ten minutes for me to say. Well, by the way, let me just tell you what's going on out there. You know, I can type it up. And here's what we're saying. This is not a detailed valuation like I would normally do if you engaged me, but it's enough of a valuation to know that don't sell it for seven hundred thousand. That's a joke. You should be selling it for you know three times earnings, especially based on some of the other questions that I would have asked them in terms of what's happening from a growth perspective, et cetera. So uh, it doesn't hurt. You know what I'd say is is call a business broker, call me because I'm not going to charge you for something that quick. And then if it doesn't make sense, then um, then I'll tell you, and then you can engage me. And if you already have a buyer, if you're a if you're if you get an offer like that, and you you engage a broker to help you through that, but you already have the offer, don't pay the full ten percent because you, you found your buyer. And I typically in a situation like that would say five to seven percent. So I'm not going to charge you ten percent when you've got the buyer. But you know, but I am you know. And typically, what I found when that happens, those deals are very rare that they go through. It's very, it's very rare because a lot of times it's, well, I know this person or the in, they're in the industry and they called me and you shouldn't have told them. Did you get them to sign an NDA? Uh, no. Well, what I would do is I would stop having conversation and, and let me get them to sign an NDA. You know, that kind of, you, 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 if you're going to sell, well, I'm not even sure I want to sell. All right, let's sit down and talk. Right. So that, that's, I'm just saying, I mean, it's, you're, you're laughing, but that is typically when those things happen. That's when they happen. Uh, I all the time I have people call me and say I put my business on biz by sell. I try to sell it myself and I got nothing. It's like me trying to do AdWords. Alex can do AdWords. Alex does AdWords. We get something. I do AdWords. The same words, <laughs> and we get nothing. So you know I don't know what it is. So a lot of times you know you have these buyers that try to sell it themselves, but there's something in the way that they did the listing that you know, or the way they priced it, etc. Yeah. What are some of the steps that you take in doing a, a formal valuation? So uh, the we have a list of the things that we need. We need three years of financials. We prefer to have uh, tax returns and um, and P&Ls. Uh, we don't do the due diligence specifically, so I don't tie. I mean, for those that don't know, due diligence is really so simple. You're basically taking the financial statements and making sure they tie to the tax returns. 
And then you're taking the tax returns and make sure they tie to the source documents, which are the, the bank accounts and stuff like that. So that at the end of the day, if someone tries to tell you it's anything else but that, that's due, that's that's financial due diligence. And then there's market due diligence and all kind of stuff. So, um, but anyway, the the valuation is about the you know looking at the the financial statements, tax returns, and the balance sheet. And, uh, of course, the industry that they're in and, and all that kind of stuff, understanding the trajectory, how much money they're making. So let's just say that we look at a, um, a uh, marine construction company and we see that the average – Right. And, you know, years ago they say average is awful. Right. So average is awful. We don't want to look at average, but the average multiple is three. Let's just use round numbers. But the range. Right. Let's say that standard deviation of that is is one. So now you're basically from two and a half to three and a half. So and let's say that this company that we're looking at is 20 percent up for the last three years. Then that's three and a half. I may even push it to three, seven, depending upon other factors. You know, whoa, they're in, you know, they're in um, South Texas and there's a lot of need for that and it's not going to go south. And they're in the oil industry, but they're in the oil industry in terms of supporting the oil industry. So they're not as subject to the price of oil. And so that's going to push me to, you know, much higher valuation. And then you look at some of the nuances, you know, with some businesses, uh, the prices include real estate. So if you're, if you use another broker and you don't use me, which totally be a mistake, but if you use another broker, I'm joking, nothing bad about other brokers, but you should use me. Um, if you use another broker and they give you a valuation and your industry, sometimes they own the real estate and sometimes they don't. Well, the, if, if you don't own the real estate, then you should not be looking at valuations with, with owned real estate in it. So these are the types of things that when you get a valuation, that the important nuances. Then what we'll do is we'll give, you know, basically options, marketing options. Uh, if you price it at 3.7 and the high end's 3.5 and you're not in a hurry, it's going to take longer. And that's probably going to take in that type of scenario, it's probably going to take 9 to 12 months. We'll, we'll tell folks. I mean, it's not. This is not science, and uh, brokers don't get days on market like they do on the real estate side. So it's kind of hard to know. Um, if you price it at three two, then it's probably going to be anywhere from four to you know four to nine months. You know, kind of in, in that range. If you price it at two five, it's probably going to sell within three months because it's a hot market and you know blah blah blah. So so we'll give those different options and, and we'll say what we recommend and that's at the end of the day what evaluation looks like. Um, the typical valuation that you're going to get uh, at this stage is going to be what's what's more of a comparative analysis and not a true you know spend five hundred bucks and have someone go through all your books and put together a bona fide defensible valuation. That's not what you're going to get. It's not what you need. Besides valuation, what are some other things that you do to help prepare sellers for an acquisition? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, so it really depends on the condition of their business. So to prepare to be acquired, there's there's kind of phases of it. Um, you know, one of these HVAC companies has a great, uh, great deal of ad backs. So literally, if you think about it visually, it was um, all of the files for the last three years are up on top of the office. So if you think about their space, they've got the shop, right? And then part of the shop, maybe a third of it is an office, but the office has a, has a roof on it that's inside the shop. 
And on top of that roof is where all their boxes of all their receipts and things are. And literally part of the preparation was to go through and create a spreadsheet by year that says, and, and if you go through this trouble, do it based on the tax return, not based on the, the financial statements, because it all comes down to what you reported to the government. So it's literally a spreadsheet that says the tax return says the net earnings were A. And so then therefore, here's all the addbacks. Here's depreciation. Here's, here's amortization. Here's um, when they went out to eat and they, you know, because, you know, you got to eat and you talk business and now it's it's a business expense because you're talking business um, so here's the meals meals and entertainment that were you know appropriate and here's the interest expenses and all that kind of stuff so so that's you know the preparing for sale because anybody who buys it is ultimately going to go through due diligence you might as well get it done so that's kind of the first step there's little things like you kind of clean up the shop a little bit now, I didn't I, I haven't really had to tell very many but I had a popcorn shop that I was selling that they really needed to do that um, <laughs> um, but um, but that's you know you expect that when when a buyer ultimately comes in that they want to see things are in their place and organized so that's part of it you know and then um, those you know continue to run the business because any purchase agreement is going to say that, that the business continues to run un- uninterrupted and you know uh, un- encum- and with no encumbrances and, and additional encumbrances don't sign any you know long term uh, uh, employment contracts unless the you know the buyer that's looking at the business is aware and understands this as part of it because I mean then it starts becoming a little bit weird because I'm getting ready to give Mark here a raise because he's doing such a great job he's an incredible interviewer and he's really, really, you know, knocking the, knocking the doors down. Um, and I'm going to take his pay up from 10 cents an hour to 12 cents an hour, you know, uh, which I'm sure sometimes Mark feels like that. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you know, then I go to the, before I do that, if I'm in a contract with the buyer, I say, look, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Mark's getting ready to take on a bunch of additional responsibility. That 20% increase that I'm paying him, I, you know, I just lost a headcount. But at the end of the day, I really can do kind of a shared thing here. Mark can take it on and it'll develop him and help him. So I just want to make sure you're aware of that. I'm going to do it. I'm asking, not asking for your permission because you haven't bought the company yet. But if you say, well, I wouldn't do that. I think it's a big mistake. Uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that over or something like that, then that that seller may want to say, let me do a timeout on this. I don't have to do it yet. Sorry, Mark, you're not getting your 12 cents. So that's part of the whole kind of preparation. And then finally, you know, in that stage uh, of post-offer that I tell my sellers and they don't like it, um, but it's, it's, it's a reality. And I tell them at the very beginning that I'm going to tell them this. And then when I tell them, they go, oh, I remember you telling me this, um, is pour it on. You need to pour it on because uh, in your business because while this buyer is going through their due diligence, I want what I call headlines. I want to go to this buyer and say, hey, by the way, they just, you know, like in say HVAC company just got a new $100,000 contract. Just got a new $100,000 contract, which on their margin is another thirty grand a year of profit. They just landed it. We're not raising the price. Headline. So what it does is it keeps my buyer really excited. And doesn't want, you know, oh, yeah, 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 I'm on this. I'm really excited. That's that's great. Tell, you know, tell Joe or Bill or Mary or whatever, you know, the seller's name. That's exciting. That's wonderful. So those are headlines. So the sellers need to pour it on. And, and, and pretty much from the very beginning when they put it on the market, they need to pour it on. There's not – I can always – you know, people go, you can never raise the price. You can always lower the price. That's not true. So think about this. I've got a listing up there. It's, it's typically anonymous or it's, you know, confidential. So 
it just says, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, computer repair company for sale in Austin, and it's doing this much in revenue, this much in profit. You know, great location, doesn't say where. You know, great staff, doesn't say who. Blah blah blah, right? And <clears throat> let's just say that they land. This company's doing a million a year, and they land a hundred thousand dollar contract. You know, or you know, three hundred thousand dollar contract. They're going to be making another hundred thousand dollars on three times. I'm taking the price up three hundred thousand dollars. If it's a signed contract, done. So I just reskin it. So I basically take the listing down, change the, you know, put it back up with a different picture. You know, everything looks different. Everybody thinks it's a brand new listing. So you can raise, you know, you can raise the price. And so I want, uh, you know, I tell my sellers, give me that problem, give me that work. Let's raise the price. Let's pour it on. Are there, is the process of selling a, a, a corporately owned entity different than selling like a franchise? Yeah, totally, totally different. Um, and also buying, it's it's probably um, more different. Is that is that good English? It's more more yeah, better. You're good. More more, more different. <laughs> it's not more better, but it's more different on the buying side than on the um, than on the selling side. But on the selling side, you uh, you know typically franchisors, right, of the uh, sellers of franchisee have franchisors have the first right of refusal. And so let's say I find someone to buy my business and it's and it's Sue and Sue's great and Sue's, you know, doesn't have experience in restaurants, but she's going to be great, you know, and I go to the franchisor. Well, really, there's two kind of controls that the franchisor has. Number one is the first right of refusal. So let's say that Mary's going to buy my restaurants for, um, you know, 30000 and um and they're really only worth you know, well, she's going to buy them for thirty, and they're worth fifty. Franchise or can come in and say, "We'll buy them for fifty, or we'll see your thirty. We'll see, we'll see that thirty, and now they have first right of refusal. So that's the first thing that they can do to kind of, uh, which is fine. I mean, the seller doesn't care. Uh, but the second thing is that, that now Mary has to be approved. And so the franchisor will have to, and typically franchisors approve. Um, you know, and I did this at Taco Bell where I was a part of that process operationally and financially. And so franchisors expect a, a certain amount of liquidity and expect a certain amount of net worth to kind of protect themselves. And, um, and then they expect a, uh, an experience that uh, – experience kind of set, set that uh, will kind of ensure the greatest chances of being successful. If you sell an independent – you know, the only person that's kind of sitting there saying, are you sure this is the right business for you is, is me. And I'm not going to unreasonably withhold. And if I find someone that, you know, I've had people that say, I don't care that I don't have experience and I, I don't care that I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. I want this. Um, and then I'll, I'll present that to the seller. Typically the sellers, so think about a good seller, right? So that's maybe a, a, a question that, that what, what is a good seller? Um, you know, not only we talked about what's a good business, but what's a good seller. So a good seller, I think, in my opinion, is someone that just doesn't say, I don't care who they are, just sell this damn business. Um, I don't think that's a good seller. Mm. And um, because if that's the attitude that they have and the person who's buying the business is going to get all their people and all their customers and that's the attitude, then that's kind of what they're getting. So I'm really wary of, you know, I want my a good seller Instead of saying what's not a good seller, what is a good seller? A good seller is someone that says, look, that's my second family. I mean, my restaurants, those, those employees, th those people are my second family. 
I've got my first family, I've got my wife, and I've got my three daughters, and I've got two grandkids. That's my first family. And then the, my, my second family are my people that go out there and bust their butt every single day for us. So uh, a good seller is someone that kind of sees it that way and says, and those are the sellers that I work with. I mean, it's, I can't even remember having a seller that didn't care. That you know says you know I and I always say that at the buyer seller meeting, which there's a, an, a four item agenda for that buyer seller meeting, but that's copyrighted. Um, uh, but anyway, protected uh, the way we do this way we do business. But uh, in that agenda, my expectation is at the very beginning that the seller is kind of looking at me, going like give me and, and you, you guys can't see the face that I'm making but scrunch up your face and shake your head yes and that's the face that you know I believe that the you know that that I want my seller to give me that you know I want her to say you found the right person and she's not going to say it where he you know whoever's buying the business is going to see it but we'll know you know I'll get I'll get kind of the high five look so that's what we're looking for and that's magic and you walk out of these meetings sometimes going wow that was like a revival, <laughs> you know, these buyer-seller meetings, this thing's going to happen. And then you're very surprised if something stops it from happening. That's awesome. Mike, I, I still have so many questions, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Do you have any last pieces of advice for business owners who are considering selling their company? Uh, well, I would, uh, I would say, you know, make sure that you get proper counsel. I mean, Texas Business Brokers, we're here to help. Um, make sure that, you know, that you don't get so enthralled in selling your business that you're not listening to reality. At the end of the day, things always kind of simmer down to what's left in the pot, and that's the reality, and that's what's left to deal with. So I'd just make sure that when you interview your broker that you uh, make sure that, you know, that she uh, or he um, – you know, is has experience, is looking at it the right way, uh, is looking at it logically, and is not, you know, what they, they call it shooting sunshine. It's not shooting sunshine. It's telling you straight and ask the hard questions because they want to get the listing. So they're going to, you know, a lot of the brokers out there are not to disparage anybody, but they're going to say whatever they have to do to, to get the listing. And you just have to make sure that, to talk to a couple of them. That's great advice. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure.